2: Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What kind of
0: programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent.
2: Hi everyone, I'm Katie Couric and this is Next Question. Today, I'm really excited to be sitting down with my friend Don Lemon to talk about his new book. It's called, This is the Fire. I'm really glad he wrote it. I learned a lot. It's really a blend of his own life experiences with a look back at both our country's problematic history as well as the racial reckoning we've all witnessed over the past year. There was so much to talk about, so let's just get right to it. I'm really excited about this conversation. And, you know, normally I would never ask an author, why did you want to write this book? But for you, I think it's so deeply personal. It's also complex. And I don't think it's a dumb question. So I'm going to start with that. Why this book and why now?
1: Okay, two things. There are no dumb questions. And that's we we have to allow each other grace. There are no dumb questions. And um, you can only be offended by to the extent that your own ego allows you to be offended. So we have to get out of our ego. So why did I do it? I did it because I thought it was important. I thought that someone like me, Katie, who's, as you know, once you get to a certain position in, in this business, it's rarefied air. Not many people have these opportunities in the whole world to be able to speak to an audience. I get to speak to an international audience. So I'm at the Matrix of pretty much every weeknight on television for two hours, every single thing that goes on in this country that, that, Amer- that we're talking about. And race has been a very big issue. As you know, during the Trump administration, you saw all the people who were capitalizing on book deals and writing books. And I got so many requests every time the president would tweet about me, the former president, write a book, do something, right? You know, do notes from a journalist. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. I don't want to do that. So I think, you know, I'd written a book and I said, I'm never going to do it again. It's so hard, you know, because especially the promotion. My dog is here whining for attention. Sorry. (laughs) This is, you know, doing stuff at home. We're in the middle of a pandemic. So um, Charlottesville happened. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this guy is making excuses for racists. And then um, Ahmaud Arbery happened in Georgia when shot with a shotgun, killed in the middle of a street jogging. Then Breonna Taylor happened. And then George Floyd happened. And we were all sitting at home, vulnerable on our couches, you know, stuck in our homes, not knowing if we were going to get COVID, if our loved ones were going to get COVID, nothing. We didn't know if the world was going to be the same in the next moment. And so um, we all saw it happen on our devices. And there was no denying the experience that some of our fellow countrymen have at the hands of police and also in our society when it comes to discrimination. And I said, I've got to say something because people like you, not that you call me, but certainly we had these conversations. Um, a lot of people were calling and emailing and writing and texting, okay, Barkley, and saying, help me, Don, I love you. I feel like I haven't been you know, a, a good ally to my friends, you, my black friends. I don't want my kids to grow up in a country like this where a man can be killed in broad daylight like this by the hands of a police officer. I don't have the vocabulary to be able to... to to speak to my kids or to my friends. I don't have the tools. What, what do I do? And I, after giving some advice, telling people to listen, um, I just I decided I'm going to write this book. And I was, um, James Baldwin had, had a profound impact on my life as a young man. He's a gay Black author who is just a, a, an amazing, he is my literary hero. And uh, I call him a revolutionary, a wordsmith revolutionary. And um, I was away from my family. I was feeling guilty about the world that I had. It somewhat helped shape that that I was handing off to my great nephews that they were inheriting. And I said, the fire next time has had the most impact on my life. I'm gonna start by telling my nephew how I feel about him, that I hope he's able to love himself sooner than I was able to love myself, to accept and embrace and love his beautiful blackness with a grace and an ease that I was not able to as a young man. Um, and, you know, I, I couldn't, my family comes to visit me in the summer and I think you, you met them at the, at the engagement yeah, party. Yeah. I
2: met, I met your sweet mom. My mom. But and also my I met her home at home. another party and it was so fun. Yeah. yeah. And she was so, so dear, but anyway, go ahead. So they usually come
1: to visit me and that's how I show my love, spending time with them. And with you, as you know, with daughters, thirteen to fourteen year old, if you call them up and say, you know, his name is Trushad. Trushad, I love you so much. I wish I could be with you. I just want to hug you. He'd be like, Ew, Uncle Don, gross, right? I just want to go back to playing my video game. And so I decided to sit down. And put pen to paper and write this letter to him as James Baldwin had written to his nephew at the beginning of the fire next time. And that's how it started.
2: Can you read us a passage from the letter to your nephew? Because I think that would be a wonderful thing for people to hear. Yes, I
1: have it right here. And I I just realized Barkley is smelling my cookie. (laughs) so He's he's right here trying to get um, onto the table where I have my computer. Prologue, a letter to my nephew, May 25, 2020. Dear Trishad, today I heard a dying man call out to his mama, and I wept for the world that will soon belong to you. I know what comes next as surely as I know the Mississippi rolls down to the sea. The weeping passes, the rage takes hold, the rage burns out, the blame begins, the blame bounces back and forth and promises are made, and the promises wither and complacency returns. And the complacency stays. It stagnates like a lullaby on autoplay until another man dies face down on another street in another city, and the weeping begins again. I was a baby boy in our family until 13 years ago when you came along and made a grandmother out of my big sister, Lisa. Your grandmother helped raise me, and I helped raise your mother. So when you were born, it all came full circle. You look like me. We share the same forehead, nose, and well articulated arm bones. We share the same skin. A dark russet color, rich with history. Yours is darker than mine in winter, but in the summertime, I gravitate in your direction. So that's when I go into how beautiful he made me. When I saw him as a kid and getting to know him as a young man, he made me feel beautiful about myself because he was so beautiful. He's such a beautiful person. And I look at him and I say to him, all those things that my sister and my parents tried to teach me as a young person about how beautiful I was as a, as a black Kid, I never believed it until I laid eyes on my great grand, my great nephew. And so, um,
2: why didn't you believe it? Why didn't you believe it?
1: I didn't believe it, Katie, because the media I never saw myself ref- reflected back in television commercials or <clears throat> in children's TV shows, except for the rare, you know, hey, 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 on uh, it's Fat Albert for the rare, or the rare, you know, uh, Jackson Five. Cartoon. Everything else looked like other people than me. All the images in media never looked like me. Never said that I was beautiful. I lived in the South. I grew up. Either you had there was a brown paper bag test if you were lighter or darker. There was colorism in the black community. You had to have a certain texture hair, and it was just such confusing. And then I was hiding the secret that I was gay. So it was it was not easy as a kid. And then on top of that, I was hiding a secret about a neighbor, an older kid who was you know, molesting me, doing things that he shouldn't do to me. And so it was, it wasn't, I, I had this beautiful dreamlike childhood in this Southern town, but I had all these little secrets that, that complicated my, my experience.
2: You know, I wonder too, you were talking about all the Ahmad Aubrey and Breonna Taylor, and of course, George Floyd. And you had the overlay of COVID disproportionately affecting people of color. Was that the, the alchemy that, that made this situation so beautifully combustible and, and, and so, so appropriately combustible because it seems to me that the stars were aligned to break it wide open. Mm -hmm. Did you Mm -hmm. feel that way?
1: Yeah, but I, I felt that way. Of course, COVID, yes, it, COVID was, you know, this just, as you said, it was sort of the stars were aligned, but it was in an awful way, right? Um, it led us here, but it was an awful, if we, you know, if we could choose not to have that experience, we would choose that, but it, it led us to where we are now. Katie, I didn't know, I thought we were going to be at home for two weeks, right? Like, okay, we'll be at home. And then the economy started to go off a cliff people started to get really sick. Um, we couldn't leave our homes. Everyone was like, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to get food? We're going to order in. Am I going to do this? And everyone was watching the news to trying to figure out what was happening with this pandemic. And then this man, this video of this man di- dying comes out and we can't take our eyes off of it because it's so horrendous. And I think that If we I don't I don't know if it would have had the same impact. I think it would have had an impact, but probably not as significant if we weren't all just trapped in our houses, being forced to watch the news, trying to figure out what was happening, not just from day to day, but from moment to moment. That's why I think it had such a huge impact. And because we were all open and vulnerable, we all felt, I think, a a very similar degree of humanity and vulnerability. I don't know where this is going. I'm not so sure about my future. Maybe all this money I have doesn't save me from this horrible thing that could happen to me. And so it was it sort of it was like a it was like the, um, uh, the a great equalizer for all of us to be able to feel and experience each other's shared humanity.
2: But I also feel like it must be a very singular experience for a black American, especially a black American man, to witness the murder of George Floyd. And I'm curious, Don, the first time you saw that video, the first mm-hmm. time you watched the seconds go by and that man casually with his hand in his pocket, basically suffocating another human being. I, I. Take me back to that first time when, when you probably couldn't, sadly, take your eyes off of it either.
1: I couldn't take my eyes off of it. And I just remember, um, I kept thinking he was robbing him. He was a human being, right? Robbing um, a child of God of his um, natural, of his God-given right to be able to breathe, is what I thought. And um, You know, people talk about, you know, the death penalty and all of that, and whether we should have control over another person's life or death or existence. And here's a person who was exhibiting that in real time for us. But I remember seeing the video and I think I was, um, I was, I don't know, I was in the office actually by myself, which was weird because we were all in quarantine and I was um, one of the only anchors going into the office. And even though there was no one out in my pod, I was just sort of looking around, I had to close the door of my office and I just cried. Um, And I couldn't believe it. I could believe it, but I couldn't. That for me, I saw my nephews, I saw my uncles, I saw my cousins, I saw my dad, I saw people, I saw there, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, And I, I just had to cry. And I knew immediately that the character assassination would start, you know, this sort of, Idea that we have of the perfect victim. Well, he must have been doing something. Well, was he on drugs? He didn't comply, and all these things that that go along with. And I always say, what police stop is positive? Even when I'm getting pulled over for a traffic ticket, I know he's not going to say, "I want to write you a ticket because you were going the speed limit, Mr. Lemon," and we're going to give you fifty dollars for obeying the law. No encounter with a police officer is like that. If they pull you over, if, if flashing lights happen to. You know, show up behind Katie Couric's car. I mean, I think you have um, the you you have the confidence that you're going to survive it, but it's not a happy experience. You're not looking forward to having an encounter with a police officer. It's never positive. So this and, and and in some way, you're the cop is thinking that you're breaking the rule. So most of our encounters with police officers are not positive experiences. They think that we're doing something wrong. So I you know I I just you know I knew that that would come but my initial experience was sadness anger and depression it it was contributing quite frankly if you want really want to talk about this Katie Kirk which I know you do it was contributing to the depression that I was already dealing with from um, not only from covering Trump for 4 years or however long it had been and then that came along with being in quarantine having my friends suffer COVID, not being able to see my family, and just the general melees, it just made it that deeper and worse.
2: I covered all these stories, Don, you did. Trayvon Martin, Jordan Davis, who was murdered because the music in his car was played too loud when he was with a group of friends. And, you know, these, these sporadic incidents that made their way onto the national news, who knows how many never made their way uh, to the national news. But... It was George Floyd that that really galvanized the Black Lives Matter movement as as never before, as no one else really had uh, much to the chagrin, I'm sure, of a lot of activists who were paying attention to this very early on. And 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 what was it about about the George Floyd murder? And I think also. Ahmaud Aubrey and Brianna Taylor. And do you think the pandemic, as you were saying earlier, created this, this recognition and this activism that just for whatever reason was not ignited uh as it you know should have been earlier? Well, I think it's hard
1: for people to um to believe things. And then you know I know some people are grown at the idea of, or when people say that's privilege, but privilege really is, is when you don't have to think about it because it doesn't happen to you. And, I, and listen, I, to a certain degree, even though I am um, a person of color, I have a male privilege in the society that I don't have to um, be concerned about um, things if I don't want to, that women have to deal with. Right. I can turn a blind eye to them because they just don't happen to me.
2: Or you may have an, eco- an economic privilege, right?
1: Because- and, 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 I do, and I do have an economic privilege in this society that, um, that many people of color don't. And actually, many people not of color don't have the, the same economic privilege. You're absolutely right. And, and privilege comes in many forms. I know people groan at that. But you don't have to think about it, right? You could not avoid George Floyd, Katie. And no matter how many times you saw the video, even if you see it today, if someone says, sit down and watch this video, either you go, I can't watch any more of it, or come on, let's be honest. You scream like, okay, enough. It's been a minute. You can take your knee off the guy's neck now. Come on, stop it. Like you scream at this video as if it's real, even though you know the outcome and you're sitting there going, oh my God, I cannot believe this. I can't believe it. Can you take the guy? He's not armed. He's..." you know, did he do something that wrong that you have to snuff the life out of him? Like, just stop. And you have people there screaming, stop, stop, stop. And everyone is feeling the same thing. And they are telling him, you're going to kill him, stop. And to, I, just, I just think that it's, it's, it's just so relatable to everyone. And you couldn't ignore it because you had to, what else were we doing? We had nothing, quite frankly, we had nothing else to do but pay attention. And so, um, yeah, that's why I think I just think that it was the video was so profound. It happened for such a long time. We didn't see Breonna Taylor. We heard about it. The part of the video with um, Ahmaud Arbery, initially, I think we saw the shotgun blast maybe once or twice. And then the news media decided we're not going to show it. We'll show it up until the point of the blast and then we'll stop. George Floyd, we played all eight minutes and 46 seconds of it because it was so egregious and so horrific. And um, I really think that that was key, that people, it was, it was so in your face and it was just so undeniable. Even the people who d- don't want to believe that those types of interactions happened with police had to believe it because it was there. Now they're making excuses for it in the trial, like there were these things that you didn't see and what the media is not telling you about George Floyd and blah, blah, blah. So now that's a whole political thing. That's a spin, but we know what we saw.
2: Why do you think the world almost immediately or in the last couple of years, Don, the country divided itself into Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter or All Lives Matter?
1: Okay, so the whole idea of the book is, if you, if you know, um, is about truth and it's about, that's why I give some history lessons, right? And it's right. about talking about contributions of of Black Americans or African Americans to the country, and that many people were left out, right? I think my people were left out a lot of the history. And we learned, well, we learned George Washington Carver and the peanuts and Eli Whitney and the cotton gin or whatever, but we don't learn that there were uh, Africans on the continent helping to build the country before the Mayflower even showed up, right? right. So we don't learn about those things. So I think that um, that we live in two different worlds and that it was meant that way. It was meant for us to live in two different worlds. It was meant for, as you said, it's the environment that we've, we, we've grown up in. And I say, if you, if you come out of American soil, how could you not, the extreme people will think it's extreme is be racist or have a racial blind spot, or not think that, um, and not have issues when it comes to white supremacy because that, has, that is what has been presented to you. Columbus discovered America, you know, right? When we all know, well, Columbus didn't discover America, that's offensive to Native Americans. If, now, if you say Europeans and Columbus conquered America, you're absolutely right. And what is wrong with saying that? Nothing. That's the true history of this country, right? So it, it should not be whitewashed. So we have two different, we live in two different worlds. I think most African Americans, and many African Americans know, and I don't think it was taught in the history book, maybe white America doesn't know, that the history of policing comes from when it- Slavery. As it Slavery, slave catching, making sure that slaves don't leave the plantation um, and that they don't, you know, they don't run away from slavery. Fast forward to now, many African Americans, especially in urban areas, um, feel like they are occupied, that police officers are the occupiers rather than the peace officers in their community. And so, where you as a white American, Will look upon a police officer as having your, your best interest and in looking out for you and is trying to protect you. African Americans look at police officers as sort of what are they going to do to me? Are right. they going to you, you understand what I'm saying? Oh, so there's yeah, a
2: com- totally. I mean, I think that's
1: a completely different relationship. So yeah. just let me finish your thing here. So that's how we so when we say, when people say black lives matter. Basically, what they're saying, as you've heard, is Black lives matter, too. Not that only Black lives matter, but that you should have the same respect for Black lives as you have for white lives in this society. And um, by saying, well, blue lives matter or all lives matter, it is a denial of um, and a lack of prioritizing what the, me- what the point is in this particular moment. And that is that we have to protect and we have to understand that Black lives in this society matter as much as any other life. But the point is not all lives matter. Everybody gets all lives matter. White lives matter in this country and have been prioritized over Black lives forever. Of course, blue lives matter, but that's not the point of this. The point of this is to draw awareness to the plight and the attention of Black people. So why are we divided in that? It's just because we have have two different perceptions of America. Right. Does that make sense to you? Do you understand that?
2: Oh, completely. Oh, I completely do. And by the way, I'm not one of those people who responds to Black Lives Matter with either Blue Lives Matter or All Lives Matter. But it seems that, you know, as as so much of society that these two opposing forces immediately kind of rise up and they don't
1: have to be opposing.
2: I know that's that's my point.
1: Yeah, they don't have to be opposing. They can, you, can, you can think that blue lives matter, all lives matter, and black lives matter all at the same
2: time. <laughs> people have a hard time, I think, uh, recognizing that, though, don't you? I feel like we live in a world where people are on one side or another, and that's one of the big problems.
1: Well, that's right. And that's the whole, like, listen, um, you have been very involved in colon cancer, right? Right. So if you know if someone says well, you said what well, you said um, you know uh, colon awareness matters, and someone said no, Katie, AIDS awareness matters, and you're like, yes, it does, but I'm not talking about AIDS awareness, and it's all AIDS awareness is very very important, and there are people who it's their issue, but my issue is colon awareness and colon health, and I want to draw attention to that, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. There's you know there's um, there's a degree of pride and there's something great about what the awareness that you're bringing to, to colon health. And that it's not that you're shunning or saying that, you know, AIDS awareness is bad. It's just that you're focused on colon health. This is that simple.
2: When we come back, Don shares what his sister Lisa's untimely death taught him about the importance of grace. don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet, Finance smarter.
0: Zumo Play.
2: Let's talk a little bit, Don, about how deeply personal your book is, because you talk a lot about your family. And you talk very movingly about your grandmother in particular, who you you uh, pronounce uh, mommy. 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 And you write, uh, I know that you lived with her when you were a little boy. She had a fifth grade education. You tried to help her learn to read and um, talk to us about how this shaped you personally, but also your view of the world.
1: Oh, this always gets me. Um, So I was growing up and my grandmother was my life. I loved her. So, I mean, just loved her and we would The funny thing, we would be together and they would wonder why was this white lady with this black kid when, you know, because they didn't, my grandmother was, as they say, mulatto, right? She came from mixed parents and, but that was back in the day. So, um, but she was, we were always together. We were thick as thieves. And um, I didn't realize that my grandmother just had a fifth grade education. Like, you don't know that when you're a kid, but I remember doing my homework around the kitchen table. And I don't know, you know, how you grew up, but we had these. you know, aluminum cabinets, these white, like metal cabinets, and, um, you know, the little, like, plastic chairs. But it was kind of the kitchen that everybody had in the 50s and 60s. You know what I'm talking about?
2: Yeah. And I was sitting, this A lot was of vinyl. yellow.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we, and, and yes. And every, every, every couple of years, we'd get another one. Either it was yellow or, you know, baby blue. And then later it became olive green, you know, the whole yeah. thing. And so we would sit around this, this, this yellow and white kitchen table. Um, you know, that had the yellow phone on the wall with the cord that went around the house. And so um, I would do my homework and I would ask my grandmother to try to help me. And she would sit there and, you know, her presence would help. And then, but very quickly I got to the point and I realized that she really couldn't help me, that she wasn't helping me. And then, so I would just sit and talk to her and she would tell me about all these stories as we were reading. So I think that was what she was doing was trying to throw me off the trail or overcompensating because she would tell me stories if I would ask her about things and so she would go and tell me stories. And then she would tell me stories about going to vote and um, how she couldn't go vote. She would just give all of these old stories, and oh, and when I was coming up, A, B and blah, 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 blah. And one of the stories was about voting and how they would make her count the jelly beans in the jar. My mom would take her to vote and how they would, um, uh, the 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 number of bubbles in a bar of soap and all kinds of things and poll taxes. And I couldn't believe it. And one day I just started crying. And I was like, my grandmother, I can't believe that my grandmother couldn't vote. That was just so weird to me or they tried to stop her from voting. And how was my grandmother in her, I guess at the time in her forties, maybe or fifties, how could she not know how to read? Like, doesn't everybody learn how to read? Like I didn't, I didn't understand those things. And then from that moment on, Katie, I wanted to read. I wanted to be like the best reader ever so that I could teach my grandmother how to read. Because I just thought it was just unfathomable to me that someone was not allowed to have an education or that the the circumstances of her life prevented her from getting an education. So I I learned how to read quickly. And the biggest part of that was sitting around that table with my grandmother so that I could eventually teach her how to read as a first or second grader. And did you? I did. And my grandmother and I would sit there and we would read my little fun with Dick and Jane books. See, Dick, run. Run, Dick, run. Look at Jane and Dick play. You know, those kinds of things. And I would do my, um, you know, they would, the teacher would give you word lists and you'd have to say, other, other, right? And you would say, And I would sit there with my grandmother and we would do our homework together and we would learn to read together. And that was my experience growing up with my grandmother. I still miss her to this day.
2: Was she able to to see you succeed?
1: She was able to see um, a degree of success for me. Um, But my grandmother started to, just before I left Louisiana, she started to develop Alzheimer's. And so I made my peace with my grandmother, because it was during the time that I had to move on from Louisiana, and my mom and my aunt were taking care of her um, as she had Alzheimer's, because my mom refused to put her in the home. She said, "I will never see my mother in a home." And I watched my mom within those 10 years or so, and I think it was five years um, while I was there, and then probably five years after I left, I watched my mom age. I could see it every time I go home, and she would age. Ten years in one year. Um, But yeah, she got to see some degree of success. But by the time I became like a really thriving adult, my grandmother had was succumbing to Alzheimer's. She would go and um, she would drive off in her 1965 Ford Falcon, (laughs) powder blue, by the way. And uh, she would come visit us at our house. We lived around the corner. And then we should have a conversation. And then no more than 20 or 30 minutes later, she would come back again as if she hadn't been there. And that's how we started to figure out. And then, um, you know, she would start to, like, walk down the street in her slip and not have her dress on. And so then we would know that she was dealing with something. That's how we figured it out.
2: Yeah. But, but your sweet mom got to see you in all your glory.
1: Isn't that amazing? That is, the, that is the one thing, you know, and I write about in the book The Visit to Africa, Katie, as you know. To any any child that has any awareness, all they want to do is make their mom, their parents proud, especially the mom. And my mom had sacrificed so much for me. Um, the trip that we took to Africa to learn about our ancestry, and we sat by the sea and talked about what we were experiencing. And we had just, you know, we had just been to the uh, Cape Coast Castle in Ghana, where where the slaves left to make that a- a trek across the Atlantic. Uh, and it had been such an emotional day for us. And we were watching, as we were watching all this, these kids play in the sea, naked, some of them with bathing suits on, some of them in shorts, some of them naked, just frolicking, not a care in the world, just being kids. And we wondered if we would have had that degree of freedom if we had stayed there. With, and and um, even with the, all of the luxuries and the privilege that we had as Americans, if there was something in us that did not... Um, that we did not contain that sort of freedom in our person because of everything that we had gone through, even with all the privilege that we had. Because it was just, if you ever watch kids like that, they're just carefree, not a care in the world. And they don't know all of the craziness, right? It hasn't gotten to them yet. And we started talking about that. And my mom said, I know that you are, I'm the mother and I'm supposed to show you things, but I'm so proud of you. You have shown me things and taken me places that I never thought that I would experience and see in my life. And I cannot tell you how proud I am of you and how much I love you and and what this experience has meant to me. And I just lost it. And I said, you know what, if I never accomplish another thing in the world, on this earth, I'm totally fine now. That's it.
2: (laughs) You're you're, you had a, a, a tragedy and I didn't realize this, Don. I wish I had, because you dedicate this book to your older sister, Lisa. Mm-hmm. who who died unexpectedly in 2018. And you write so poignantly about what it was like to to grieve that loss. And, um, you know, having worked on my own book and having to relive just even losing my husband, Jay, 23 years ago, this was still so fresh and so painful. Um, and I wondered if you could just talk about the experience Talk about her first and foremost, so we understand more about her, but also talk about the experience of of writing about your grief.
1: Um, The experience in our lives shape us. This is why the the book is so hopeful to me and why I believe in in, in allowing people to have grace. Right. I don't believe in canceling people. I don't believe in um, judging people harshly. Because we all deal with things and we don't know what people are dealing with, right? And, and even and sometimes our anger can be really telling about who we are and what we've experienced. And so um, this was a very profound experience for me. And it, it taught me, uh, I shouldn't say it taught me, I think it just, um, it reconfirmed All of the teachings that I had learned, all the things that I had learned from my grandparents and from from my grandmother and from my parents about grace and about um, loving people, because I love my sister with every fiber of my being. And um, all of a sudden I lost her and not that she was sick, not that, you know, there was some expectation, maybe she'll get well, maybe she won't, maybe we should say our goodbyes, but all of a sudden in an instant, Um, and which was part of the urgency of writing this book. My sister's death um, reinstilled in me an urgency to make change, to live my life, to say what I want to say before my time is up, and to do right by people, and just to tell the truth. So um, my sister was like a you know, the modern day version of Angela Davis with the Afro. She was like black power. She, she made me, um, she taught me about Gil Scott Heron. She would play it in the car in her little convertible. Um, she would make me listen to Dr. King's speeches and Malcolm X speeches. And she was, she was a force. And, um, and this force, I was like, how can my, not my sister can't be dead. She can't have drowned accidentally in a lake. My sister's a force of nature. She's the person who taught me how to drive, how to dress, the value of a dollar, how to stand up to people, um, how to that teach people how to, how to treat you. All those things. Devil may care. She, you would say something to her and she would tell you exactly how she felt and you'd be like, ooh, wow. And so she was worse than me. She had a mouth that was worse than mine. But um, that, was, that was, that's why I give people grace. Because that, that is a pain that I don't want anybody ever to have to go through, losing a sibling that you're so close to, but also the pain that my mother went through. Um, and I, I listen, I, I saw it, but I still can't relate to it. The, they say losing a child for a parent is the worst thing that can happen. And I watched my mother, and I experienced her go through that, and I write about it in the book, how she could not stop talking because she had to fill the silence. Because the silence was just too painful for her. And it would fill her with thoughts that she probably didn't ever want to think and the realization that her eldest daughter was dead. And I watched her just talk, 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 and fidget and smoke and smoke cigarettes and do whatever. And just she just couldn't be silent for a moment. And so it was even worse than when my dad died as a kid. So. Yeah, that's my experience with my sister. But you probably didn't realize I was going through it because and it wasn't that long ago. Um, I felt so I
2: bad. I felt so bad. Not- I not
1: like to talk about those things publicly. And I put up this front, right? Like, hey, everything is great. But everything wasn't great, Katie. I was dealing with a lot of a depression. And I was also dealing with, at the time, the whole Trump thing, which was so tough as a journalist to cover. I know it sounds crazy, but it was so toxic. That's what it was just so toxic. And all of it was just weighing, it started to weigh on me.
2: Can you read uh, a passage about Black Americans and grief from page 69 for us, Don?
1: The chapter is called My Lord, What a Morning When the Stars Begin to Fall. And I talk about the Negro spiritual about uh, mourning. It should be M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G and not M-O-R-N-I-N-G that people think that you're, you're uh, talking about. But I talk about um, about Black grief, also depression, how we, you know, don't really talk about it and, um, and so on and so forth. Okay, so it's, I say, Black Americans have an intimate relationship with death. They know loss and what it is to be left behind. A Black funeral is a beautiful thing to experience because that marrow deep understanding moans from the very bones of the mourners and reverberates in the rafters above the choir. The grief is unchained by waspish inhibition. The music is soulful, older than pipe organs in church pews. White choirs try to co opt songs like Go Tell It on the Mountain and Swing Low Sweet Chariot, but they never truly succeed. In the late 1800s, white Protestant choirs began to sing a Negro spiritual that, in their minds, spoke of the rapture of that day at the end of days when a resolutely white Jesus would return to Earth kicking butt and taking names. My Lord, what a morning when the stars began to fall. But the original version of the song goes back much further. The song, as it is cited in the souls of Black folks by W. B. Du Bois, is from an 1867 collection simply titled Slave Songs of the United States. And then, anyway, I go on to read what it is, and then I say, it was M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G they waited for, it, not M-O-R-I-N-G. The apparent scriptural source of the song, Amos 8, nine I talk about, speaks of a time when corruption, cruelty, and greed have reached a critical mass and the feasts of the wicked turn to lamentations. You don't have to dig hard to get the subtext there. It is not about rapture. It was about reckoning.
2: You're such a good writer, Don. I think I'm a
1: better writer than I am a journalist, Katie. <laughs> You know, this experience taught me, like, you know, I think I do okay, you know, at night on TV, just sort of talking off my head. I think I do okay with that. But when you actually have time to sit down with the words and with the um, information that you're, you know, I had to do research and all of those things. When you have time to sit with it, you can craft it. And it's not just coming off the top of your head. You're like, how do I want to craft this sentence? What do I want to tell people about it? And I, I had to remember that the original love of my life but not people wise was writing because of my grandmother learning to read and writing and that was i always got a's in writing like my teachers would not believe they'd say who wrote this for you and i would say i wrote it they said you didn't write this i would say yes i did write it and they'd have to call my parents and my parents would say yes he wrote that and I said, well, you helped him. Well, of course I helped him, but I didn't write it for him, right? Parents sit there and say, you know, you know okay, that's, you, you, um, um, you have to, you know, V instead of T-H-E-E. Or, like little things like that, but I always wrote it. And that's why I was so attracted to James Baldwin is because he's such a beautiful writer. But I think I do okay. I'm not Baldwin, but I actually think I'm a better writer than I am. Just like a TV host talking off the top of his head. <laughs>
2: When we come back, is this the end of white supremacy as we know it? That's in just a moment.
3: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico, Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to
2: podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight, room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. We are still in the midst of seismic cultural shifts of all kinds. I think when it comes to race, gender, uh, marginalized communities uh, of all kinds. And I'm curious, you know, I think about the quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But when you think about the arc of the moral universe, I mean, where are we in this racial reckoning, Don? I know we have a long way to go. In many ways, it feels like we're at the very beginning. But do you feel like progress is being made? Do you feel that it's, it's hard to evaluate? I know you had an experience in Sag Harbor when you, during the pandemic or toward the end when they opened up a shop. And well, you tell the story.
1: Well, there's open up a shop and, you know, Katie, I, I wasn't going to include that because I was like, this is way too privileged. And um, and I'll tell the story afterwards. And then um, along with the publisher and the collaborator on the book, we we're like, I was like, I don't want it. I said, I wrote about it, but I don't know if I want to. And everyone said you should leave it in there because it's important to know that these things happen to not just um, black people of a certain ethnic- economic background. It happens to all people, all, all people of color. And, um, and it was the, it is one of the most relatable things um, to people in the book. And I I almost left it out, but I was in the shop, I was shopping, I was just walking by this place that was opening up in Sag Harbor. And I wanted a cutting board and had the perfect cutting boards because I was during the pen, during quarantine, I had ruined my marble countertops with the acid from lemons that, (laughs) that I was, I was making lemonade from, we had these Myers lemon trees from the summer that we brought into the house in the winter, it was full of lemons, and so we would use it to make lemonade. I would squeeze lemons and make it in this old sunbeam mixer, thing, <laughs> which was a ruin the countertop. And so the guy who was redoing the countertop said, "Here's what I would suggest: is that you get cutting boards and you put them all over, and that way it won't, you won't get it." Okay, fine. So I saw the cutting boards, and I went in the shop, and I said, "Oh, I want these." And he said, "Sir, you can't come in. It's a I said, oh, I'm sorry." I said, "But I'll take these," and I bought them. And so I went, and on my way back, because it was right around my house, I think we were going to get a coffee or something, and I go back by, and there's, like, a woman shopping in the store. I didn't think much about it. It was just like, well, he just told me that I couldn't come in there because, it's, and there's this woman shopping in the store, and I said, and so, and I'm like, okay, so I told Tim about it, and then I called up some of my friends about it, and I called up, like, my black friends and my white friends, and they were all like, you know, and I say, like, I don't know, I don't want to make a thing out of it, maybe I'm being paranoid, I have no idea. But this is the time that we're in right now. And I said, what should I do? And, and um, they all, to a person, regardless of their ethnicity, said, take them back. And I said, OK. And I said, but I'm not going to make a thing out of it. And then I told them, I said, isn't that weird that we have to live in this world where I don't know if he was, um, if he was discriminating against me? or I, I, I'm not sure, but that is the paranoia that Black people live in. I, I equated it. I equated it to, or I equate it to running a race. Ready, set, go. Black folks are always in set when it comes to these issues. We don't know. There's a paranoia about is it happening or not. It could be that it is happening, or it couldn't be. But that's the world that we live in, and that's the reality. So um, anyway, I write about that. Long story short, I hope I've told enough of that story. I took him back. The guy and I had this knowing experience. Like, I, and I said to him, I said, I don't know. But I walked by and, you, you know, you told me this and I bought them. And then I walked by and someone's shopping. He said, oh, well, they're training in the store. And I was like, well, she doesn't look like she's training. She's shopping. And I said, anyways, they just don't fit in my kitchen. And so I would just like to return them. You can have them back. I'll take my money back. Or if there's a store credit, I don't know. I just don't want it to be an issue. And he got it. Like, I think he got it and I got it. And that was it. I felt good about what I did. I didn't blast him out. I won't say the store. It's not a big deal to me. OK, I'm not trying to cancel anybody. Go shop at every store in Sag Harbor. Spend all your money. It's not my thing. It's not for me to do. But um, so your question was, are we making progress, right? That's yeah. the, the your question. I think we are making progress. But you know how I think we make more progress, Katie? Mm. It's for people like me and you to sit and have these conversations as we are now, as someone who knows each other of different backgrounds, don't look like each other. And there is a degree of respect, friendship, love, and honesty, and and confidence and vulnerability that we have. So as I said in the beginning, there are no stupid questions. Katie Kerr can ask me anything she wants to as a friend who is white. And I'm not going to cancel her. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to yell at her about whatever. I'm going to offer her the grace to be able to learn something as long as she's willing to do so. And the same thing, I think respect should be paid back to me that Katie doesn't expect me to teach her everything about what it's like to be black, but is confident enough in me to know that I'm going to listen to her and offer my help. And so I think that we have enough people like that in our society now who are willing to do that work, I hope because we're, at, I hope so at least, we're at an inflection point. And the reason I know that we're at an inflection point is because I think that we're in the last throes of white supremacy. And my, the evidence of that for me is the insurrection on Capitol Hill, It is the um, racists marching openly in Charlottesville. It is the big lie that people bought into, many of them willingly, some of them not willingly, about an election being stolen. And a lot of things that happened over the past five years that exposed the degree of racism that we had hidden, or at least under, just below the surface in this society. So I think the demographics will take care of it. Between 2040 and 2045, we're going to be at minority majority status in this country. And I think that's going to do a lot just to, you can't fight it. It's just simple mathematics. But the inflection point now is truth, voter suppression, we have to fight against it, and having relationships with people who don't look like us, because then we get to see their humanity. This is an inflection point. So I think, yes, we have made progress, but the real work is in the coming days, months, and a couple of years ahead. But I do believe that we're at the end of white supremacy as we know it in this country. I really do. It's not going to happen over, it's not going to be, you know, in five years, it's going to maybe 10, 15, 20 years, but I think we're at the, we're at the end of it. That's why people are fighting so hard to keep it.
2: Yeah. I I, I think you're, it's almost the last gasp of a- of a, and, uh, of a different of a different country and right. you you write that we must summon the courage to love people who infuriate us um and i think that's that's very tough for a lot of people now um especially when you consider 74 million people who felt you know for whatever reason and i don't think you can generalize about that biggest largest swath of the popul- population but 74 million people Felt comfortable voting for Donald Trump, uh, and felt that it was okay if he continued to be the, you know, the leader of our country. Um, and and you don't seem that loving at night on CNN. <laughs> With all due respect, Don, <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I am loving to the people in my life who I know personally. Um, no, I
2: mean, you know, when you talk about issues, um, I don't I don't know. I don't sense many metaphorical olive branches being handed out on your show.
1: Because I can't give an olive branch to people who who don't believe in my existence. I can't give an olive branch to people who don't believe that I should have the same rights under the same laws, constitution and even under, under the same God that, um, that but then, I How live. can
2: you write? We must summon the courage to love people who infuriate us.
1: Because you can love people and you can hold them to account at the same time. And you can love people and you can expect a degree of truth from them. Um, You can love people and then not uh, have your morals and your values compromised. But the easy answer is that you can love people from afar. You don't have to, by loving someone, it doesn't mean that you have to invite them into your home. It doesn't mean that you have to sing kumbaya with them. But it doesn't mean that you have to that that you should hate them. So I don't hate anyone. I don't hate Donald Trump. I can't say that I love Donald Trump. I don't know him enough for that. But I know that there are, um, and I'm paraphrasing James Baldwin here after he met with um, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and he said, "I know that there are. I love. There are a few people I love in my life, and some of them are white, and some of them are black." And so I sort of had that same sort of feeling about it, but just because I'm calling someone out and I'm telling Trump supporters um, about themselves and not all of them, because not all of them are living in denial. Um, It doesn't mean that I don't love them or I don't love my fellow countrymen, I'm just holding them to account. But also again, as I agree, I can love them from afar.
2: I really appreciate you writing this book, Don. I think it's incredibly helpful and instructive for people. And I also appreciate your idea of grace and I think a lot of well-meaning people want to be better, want to do better um, and are trying, but sometimes they slip. And I think that giving people that grace is, is a real gift and a, a, a very much an act of, of generosity and humanity. So I think that we should have more conversations like this um, where well-meaning people really, really want to learn and do better. And sometimes I wonder how I would feel if I had grown up black in America and how, how full of fury I might be. I, you yeah. know, it's, it's an interesting exercise. Uh, and I think we're all on this learning journey, but I think your book is going to help a lot of people with that. So thank you for writing it.
1: I I believe that, I hope so. I said initially, I believe that and the reception that it's had, it's been really good. So I'm I'm very hopeful and optimistic about about that. And I agree with you, it is a gift, Um, but we have to give each other right grace, each of us. You have to respect and believe in my humanity and I have to respect and believe in your humanity. And once we start to see each other as human beings and recognize the humanity in each other, it's harder to discriminate or denigrate or put your knee on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Because obviously in order to do that, you don't see the humanity in another person. You know, you don't respect a life. And if we see each other as human beings, we respect each other's life and the right to be able to breathe. And so I agree with you. So let's continue to do this. And I hope there's a commitment in America that we all continue to do at these conversations. Do the work.
2: Thanks again to Don Lemon. And his new book is called, This is the Fire. I highly recommend it. Next question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen. associate producers, Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at katiecouric on Instagram and on my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.